Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I want to let you know that Rick has a new podcast called Tetragrammaton. After about four to five years of recording Broken Record, Rick decided he wanted to talk to more than just musicians. So on his new podcast, he'll be talking to actors, directors, wrestlers, business people, Anyone that Rick finds interesting. So make sure to subscribe to Tetragrammaton wherever you listen to podcasts. Roger McGuinn is best known as the driving force behind The Birds, a group that fused folk and popular music in the 60s. But McGuinn is also a preservationist of traditional folk music. For the past 27 years, he's been re-recording traditional folk songs and sharing them on a section of his website called The Folk Den. On today's episode, Rick Rubin talks to McGuinn about the folk den and about his decades-long career, which started in the early 60s in Greenwich Village cafes, where he played alongside the likes of Bob Dylan and Richie Havens. McGuinn reminisces, too, about the vibrant music scene in L.A. and talks about meeting his Birds bandmate David Crosby for the first time. R.I.P. Cross. You'll hear McGuinn play his guitar throughout the interview and also talk about how playing basketball with Bob Dylan helped inspire Dylan's story tour, The Rolling Thunder Review. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Roger McGuinn. Hello, hello. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? Cool, man. Tell me about the folk den. Back in 1995... I was listening to a Smithsonian Folkways album of traditional music, and it struck me that the new folk singers were not doing traditional songs anymore. They're Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan. <laughs> they're writing their own songs, and they're great songs, but what happens if you know Pete Seeger dies or Odetta dies, and, and they did, 
I looked at NPR's top 100 folk songs, and only eight of them were traditional. The rest of them were, you know, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Eric Anderson, <laughs> John Denver. I mean, yeah. everybody but the hundreds of years old, like the child ballads, the uh, cowboy songs, the sea shanties, the prison songs. All these songs were just neglected. They're just not being done. I thought, man, what's going to happen? So I, I knew how, how to record stuff on a computer. I learned that back in the early 90s when Terry Muncher invited me out to play on a Beach Boys album, and it was the first Pro Tools session with, a, it was a Mac Quadra with 12 gigabytes of optical RAM, and uh, we, we did a Beach Boys album. It turned out to be the worst Beach Boys album in the world, because he was using MIDI for the bass and, and wow. drums and stuff. But, right. but it was an eye-opener for me that you could record on a computer. Before that, everybody was like, you know, four track, eight track, 16 track, 32 track, 64 track, and digital 64 track. And then Pro Tools came out. This is like a beta copy of Pro Tools back in 91. And I thought, this is great, man. I got to get this going. So I came home and I got myself some uh, recording software and I started recording songs and putting them up on my website in a section called the Folk Den to preserve the songs. And I, I put a little story about the song, the lyrics, the chords, and a little picture, like a coffee ta table book to kind of tie it all together. And I've been doing that since November of 1995. And to date, it's uh, the 27th anniversary of that. Unbelievable, it's so beautiful. I, I came to, uh, to find Folk Den probably when, I think when the CD Treasures of the Folk Den came out is when I got turned on to it. Uh -huh. And I got turned on to it because I was researching folk songs and it was so hard to find them. Yeah, and exactly. They were going away. They, they were being just swept under the rug. Was it clear in the early days, like when you first learned folk songs when you were a kid, was it obvious that this was old music from another time? Tell, tell me about your relationship to folk music when you first got into folk music. Well, I first got into it, I was... Uh, going to high school in Chicago, and my music teacher invited Bob Gibson to come over and play a 45-minute set on the five-string banjo, and he did all this fancy picking and telling stories about the songs, and I just loved it. Before that, I'd been to Elvis and uh, Gene Vincent, Carl Perkins, Rockabilly, Johnny Cash, the Everly Brothers, and, but when Gibson did that, it made me I run up to my music teacher and ask her, what kind of music is that? And she said, it's folk music. And I said, wow. You know, I heard Burl Ives. He didn't sound like, like yeah. that. So she pointed me over to a new school that had just opened up in 1957 in Chicago called the Old Town School of Folk Music. I went over there and Frank Hamilton sat me down and said, play me something you know. And I played a, a rockabilly song and he went, uh-huh. And then he said, you know how to play the Circle of Fifths? And he went like... said, no, I didn't know how to do that. He said, well, you know how to play the blues? I said, no, I, I didn't know how to do that either. He said, well, what about finger picking? I said, okay, I've got a lot to learn. So I started going to the Old Town School two days a week, and I did that for three years until Frank, finally, Frank Hamilton finally said, 
I really can't teach you anything more in this format. Um, you know, you could have some private lessons for $12 an hour. Well, I didn't have the $12 an hour. So that was it. I kind of quit going to the Old Town School. But shortly after that, I went down to the Gate of Horn after a coffeehouse gig, and I had my banjo and guitar and hard shell cases, and you know, I was real proud of them because I looked like a professional musician. And I walked in, uh, Limelighters and Theodore Bacal were sitting around the bar. So I walked into the bar, and this jam session was going on, and Alex Hasilev from the Limelighters said, what do you got there, kid? I said, I got a banjo and a guitar. And he said, great, break out the banjo. We got too many guitars going. So I did. And I played with them till five o'clock in the morning. Wow. And that's when, that's when they hired me. They hired me to be a backup musician for Amazing. them. But I said, well, I, I can't start right now because I'm still going to high school. <laughs> and so they sent me a, a letter and my parents had to sign it because I was under 18. And they sent me a plane ticket in June and flew me out to LA. And I, I recorded with them at the Ashgrove, a record called Tonight in Person. And that was the beginning of my professional musical career. How old were you at that time? I was 17 when I went out there. I turned 18 at the Ashgrove. Amazing. But you started as a rock fan and then you fell in love with folk. Is that how it happened? Yeah, I got into Elvis when I was um, 14. I had a transistor radio, which was a new thing at the time. And it meant you could listen to what you wanted to listen to on the radio instead of a big wooden box in the living room. And I used to ride my bike around Chicago and listen to WJJD, which was a rock station. And I heard like a... Well, since my baby left, found a new place to dwell. I went, wow, that's really cool. And I had no idea that he was combining country music and blues. And, you know, he was doing a synthesis of, of different styles because he'd grown up with that all, all around him. Do you think that's what makes all great new forms of music are synthesis of other forms of music that come together to create something new? I do. I really do, yeah. And that's what happened when we combined uh, the Beatles and Bob Dylan, and people went, wow, that's, that's different. I mean, they say, okay, well, Eric, Eric Burden uh, had done uh, House of New Orleans, which was a blues, a folk song, and he did that before Mr. Tambourine Man, but somehow Mr. Tambourine Man was a little different. It was a, a more of a legato kind of thing, with a, uh, a flowing melody, and the lyrics were out of this world. I mean, you know, take me for a trip on your magic swirl ship. All my senses have been stripped. My hands can't feel the grip. My toes too numb to step. Wait only for my boot heels to be wandering. I went, wow, this is so cool. And uh, I fell in love with Dylan's uh, writing at that point. Was that the first Bob Dylan song you ever heard? No, I, I was in the village hanging out in the early 60s when Bob got there. I was uh, hanging out at Gertie's Folk City and I saw Bob play there. And he was mostly doing Woody Guthrie stuff at that point. He hadn't... Uh... Oh, one time though, I was over at the uh, White Horse Tavern and... Theodore Bikel came running over. He'd been in, I guess, the Gaslight Cafe. And he said, I just heard this marvelous song. It was blowing in the wind. And he played it, you know. So, yeah, I'd, I'd heard uh, Dylan's stuff before, The Birds. Was it obvious when you decided to do a cover song in The Birds of a Dylan song, was it obvious that Tambourine Man would be the first one? How did, how did it happen that you picked that song if you knew the others? We didn't really pick it. Jim Dixon was our, our manager, and he was a a producer uh, engineer at World Pacific Records in LA. And he had an advanced copy of Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, which was something like a... Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, please. And 
he thought it was a great song, I guess, lyrically and the tune. And he was kind of shopping it around different people. I think uh, some of the guys who were um, bluegrass guys back, back in L.A. heard it first. And he, he played it for us. It was a five-minute, four-and-a-half-minute demo with Bob and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. And Ramblin' was just kind of out there and singing out of tune, so that's why he didn't release it, because Bob never liked to go back and fix stuff. You know, it's like very, uh, like to get the impromptu thing, whatever happened when you recorded it. So we had this demo, and they played it for us, and Crosby said, I don't like it, man. That folky 2-4 time, it's never gonna play on the radio. And he was right, because radio wouldn't play anything over like two and a half minutes, and they were playing rock and roll 4-4 beat instead of 2-4. So I rearranged it. I'd been an arranger, I worked with, uh, I was a studio guy in New York, and I worked with Judy Collins and some pe other people. So I rearranged it with the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it changed the whole thing. A million percent. I mean, it's a, it's the it's the signature musical sound of the song, and it, it created a whole new genre. It's it's amazing. You talked about so many interesting things, and I want to hear about all of them. So let's talk about the village folk scene when you were there. What was that world like first? How long were you there for? Who were the other artists around? Tell me everything about it. <laughs> Okay, well, after the Limelighters gig, I got a, a sideman gig with the Chad Mitchell Trio, and I actually uh, moved to New York and lived on... I had a, an apartment with Mike Settle on 14th Street. This is early 60s, I guess 60, 61, 62, 63, around there. And the village was uh, very vibrant with folk music at the Gaslight Cafe. Dave Van Ronk was there and other artists, and, and Bob would you know be around. He was played Gertie's Folk City. And I used to watch all the acts at Cisco Houston and all the guys that uh, played Folk City. And I'd go to, to like the other coffee houses, the Cafe One. But I got a gig at the Cafe Playhouse. It was on McDougal Street. And it was one of the, uh, you pass a hat around kind of place, yeah. And I remember Richie Havens was there at the time, John Sebastian. And Peter Tork was playing banjo at that point. And I remember Sebastian saying, you, you don't want to follow Richie Havens because if you pass a hat after Richie, there's no money left. That's <laughs> <laughs> all gone. So there was a vibrant folk scene. I remember Freddie Neal there hanging out and all kinds of folk singers around. And the majority of them were playing traditional folk songs. Yes, they, they were. They're playing acoustic uh, traditional songs. And... Then the Beatles came out while I was still living in New York, and I heard the Beatles, and I went, wow. They, they were using folk music chord changes. I thought, wow, the million folk songs had that. And it gave me the idea of combining folk music and rock and roll. And I started doing some Beatles songs at the uh, Cafe Playhouse, and people were going, what's he doing, man? It's like, you know. <laughs> but... One clue, I think I was on Bleecker Street, and there were a couple of promoters that I'd seen around, and, and they pointed to me and said, what we need is four of him. And I went, oh, I think I'm onto something. Amazing. And then when did you decide to put the band together, or did you decide, or did it just happen? It happened. So I was playing these beatle kind of songs at the Cafe Playhouse, and people weren't going for it. But the promoter liked it. He put a sign outside that said, Beatle Impersonation. <laughs> 
and the tourist buses were coming around and I thought, this is embarrassing. I want to get out of New York. So I flew out to LA and I got a gig at the Troubadour opening up for Hoyt Axton. And I was doing the same kind of material and nobody liked it there either, <laughs> except for Gene Clark. Gene Clark came backstage and said, hey, I, I get what you're doing. I like the Beatles. I like folk music. Let's write some songs and see what happens. So we started writing songs every day in the front room of the Troubadour, which was open all day and you could go there for free. And then Crosby came in. Now, I had met David Crosby years earlier when I was with the Limelighters and we played the Ashgrove. The night before the Limelighters engagement at, at the Ashgrove, there was a play going on called Endgame by Samuel Beckett. It was a one-act play with four characters and two of them were in garbage cans. And they pop up and say their lines and pop back down again. And this is years before Sesame Street got the end. <laughs> so I stuck around to the end of the play and I met the, the guy who had been in the garbage can and it, it was a young actor named David Crosby. So I met him. He was, I think he was 18 and I was 17 by then. Maybe I was 18 already. But he was about a year older than me. And after the gig with the Limelighters, I wanted to go up to San Francisco. So David took me up uh, to Santa Barbara, which was his boyhood home. And I stayed there overnight. And his mother made us lamb and avocado sandwiches, and they were delicious. And then I went up to San Francisco, and that's where I got a call from the Chad Mitchell trio to fly to New York and work with them. So that's when I was in the village. I was living, living in uh, New York around that time. This is 1960, maybe the end of 1960, 61, 62. And then I traveled extensively with the Chad Mitchell trio. Didn't really have a home base. I had this apartment with Mike Settle, but I didn't really spend any time there. Was John Denver yet in the Chad Mitchell trio when you were part of it, or he was after? No, no. John Denver w was a replacement for Chad Mitchell, who I see. Um, either left the trio to become a solo artist, or I, I know he got busted for a large amount of marijuana over the Mexican border. And I think he did some time for it. So the Mitchell Trio became the Mitchell Trio without Chad. And that's what, when they got John Denver to fill in for Chad. How did you connect with Bobby Darren? He was um, in the audience at the Crescendo Club when we were opening up. The Chad Mitchell Trio was opening up for Lenny Bruce. And Bobby came backstage after the Chad Mitchell set and said, Hey, I like what you were doing up there. I'm thinking about putting a folk segment in my act. And I'd like to hire you. And I said, well, I've already got a job with the Chad Mitchell Trio. And he said, yeah, what are they paying you? And I told him, and he said, I'll double it. I said, okay. I was, I was getting ready to move on. I'd been hanging out with uh, some people from the New Christie Minstrels, and I thought about jumping ship with them. And Bobby said, no, man, if you do that, you just get buried in a group that size. Did he ever talk to you about why he wanted to go from, let's say, a Sinatra-esque singer to doing folk music? Well, I think he just appreciated it. I think he liked it. He was quite good at it. We we didn't do just like Kingston Trio stuff. We we did real prison songs. Makes a long time man feel bad. That's and, a great uh, song. Yeah, and so he'd come out and do Splish Splash and his rock and roll hits for about fifteen minutes. He'd bring me on, and I'd stand next to him and sing a harmony and play some folk songs with a 12-string, and then I was off for the rest of the night, and he'd go out and do his Sinatra stuff, and Mac the Knife and all that. And this is fun, because I used to, on the Strip in Vegas, I used to go up the Strip and check out the other shows. And I remember, I used to like Don Rickles. So I walked on the Don Rickles show one time, and he saw me coming in, and he said, hey, there's this kid here, he plays for Bobby Darren, he walks around Vegas going, I'm a star, I'm a star. <laughs> 
I said, wow, Don Rickles knew who I was. That's amazing. I'm just thinking about the world that Bobby Darren was in, and just based on what you already said, he went from Splish Splash, which is how we knew of him, to the more Frank Sinatra style, which it was already a style shift. So I guess for him doing folk music, he was already um, chameleon stylistically. He was. He was a very talented guy. He could do a lot of stuff. He, he could tap dance and he could play the vibes and uh, piano and guitar and do impressions. And it was kind of the old school of talent where, you know, uh, suit pressed, shoes shined, in tune, on time. Uh, it was like a, a discipline that rock and roll just threw out the window <laughs> when, I, when I got into rock and roll bands. But Working for Bobby was a good experience. And I used to follow Bobby around and ask him stuff about how to make it in the, in the business. And uh, he said, well, you got to get up in front of audiences as much as you can, because mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how good you are in your room. You got to test it under fire. And that was good advice. And then I mentioned that I wanted to do a movie. He said, well, I'm having a hard enough time getting myself in the movies, <laughs> but I'll check around, see what I can do. So about a week later, he came up with this script. And he said, this is from Jackie Cooper. I said, okay. So I opened it up and it was about a banjo player. I said, oh, I'm, I'm a banjo player. I could do that. I turned another page and it was about a banjo player in Petticoat Junction. <laughs> I said, oh man, <laughs> I don't think I, I could do this, man. <laughs> he said, well, you don't want to turn down Jackie Cooper because you'll never work in Hollywood. And you know what? I never have. <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> it worked out great. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with more from Rick Rubin and Roger McGuinn. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. 
if the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with more from Rick Rubin and Roger McGuinn. So it's interesting that you're in the village, either playing folk songs or Beatles songs. Everyone there are playing cover songs. What was the impetus to start writing songs? If, if, if you're coming out of a scene that's based on historic music, when did it become obvious we have to write our own songs? Yeah, the singer-songwriter thing. Well, well, before, before that, I had a job with Bobby Darren, and I worked at the Brill Building as a songwriter. So, you know, that was the impetus for me to write songs. And I think what happened was the folk thing kind of just started to, to fade out. It was like the end of it by 64, you know, starting to fade out. And people started writing more. So I, I don't know what made Joni Mitchell write clouds or you know i have no idea Dylan was very inventive and at first he was doing kind of woody guthrie imitation and then he developed his own style i remember i was friends with john and michelle phillips and i showed them some stuff i was doing it you know the beatles influence and they said oh that's just bubblegum that's kid stuff <laughs> and i said well it's got something to it cool tell me about jim dixon how did you come in contact with him and what was he like Okay, I first met Jim back in 1963, and he was hanging around the Troubadour and the Ashgrove and all that. Uh, he was going around kind of scouting talent because he was a, a producer. And he knew David Crosby. He had already recorded David, and he was looking around for different ideas. And I remember when Gene Clark and I started writing songs at the Troubadour, David Crosby came in and started singing harmony with us, and he said, I want to be in your band. And I said, well, we don't really have a band here, David. We're just kind of writing some songs. He said, oh, come on, man. If I can be in your band, I know this guy's got a recording studio we could use for free. I said, you're in. <laughs> that was, that's how we met D Jim Dixon. Cool. And he took us under his wing. He was still working at World Pacific. He'd recorded Lord Buckley there, and he knew some jazz guys. And he let us work out on the machines after all the sessions were over. 
And that's where we kind of honed our skill as a, a singing, playing band in, uh, I guess, 64, 64 by then. So we started working out at the studio and became apparent that we needed more musicians and more instruments. So we, we went to see the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, and took notes on Ringo had Ludwig drums and Harrison had a Gretsch guitar. John Lennon had a Rickenbacker, Paul McCartney had a Hofner bass, a violin-style bass. And then George Harrison came back out with another Rickenbacker. It looked like a six-string from the front, but when he turned it sideways, you could see six other tuning pegs sticking out the back. And I went, oh, man, that's an electric 12-string. i got to get one of those, because I was already a 12-string player on acoustic 12. And uh, we traded in some, I traded in a five-string banjo and a a Gibson Acoustic 12 that Bobby Darren had given me and got the Rickenbacker, and that became my main instrument for the rest of the birds. Was, was the electric 12-string a new instrument at the time? Yes, it was. It was a brand new invention. Uh, George had the very second one ever made. First one went to a woman called Susie who played in Las Vegas in, in some sort of girl band, and uh, George had the second one. Well, when Rickenbacker learned the Beatles were playing one of their instruments, F.C. Hall, John Hall's father, flew to New York, had a meeting with the Beatles, and gave George Harrison. Well, it was actually intended for John Lennon, but John was out, and George had the flu, and he was hanging around the hotel. So they gave him the 12-string, and it became his, uh, his kind of toy. He played it really well. And he did this cool thing that I learned from him. He did this thing on, see, the octave strings... He, he used to play leads up and down the G-string pair, like... Had a lot of punch. Much more than if you... If you just want the... Uh, you know. So I learned that trick from him. Did you incorporate that into any songwriting? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was in um, quite a few songs. I, the way I played lead on, say, Turn, 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 and so on. I got other riffs from other musicians, like the, the Seekers and the Searchers, you know... I stole whatever I could, <laughs> but the um, Rickenbacker had this really great sound. And then Ray Gerhard was the studio engineer at Columbia Records in L.A., and he put, I think it was um, two, no, I'm not sure the designation, L.A. UAs. It was um, a tube compressor, and he, he put the Rickenbacker into one and then out of the back of the one into another, so he had double compression on it. And it clamped it down and made it sustain more like a wind instrument because the original sound of the Rickenbacker would fall off rather quickly. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a thuddy sounding instrument. So that's really what made the, the 12-string sound so distinctive on Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, 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 at Eight Miles High. So do you think with, without the compression, was it more like a harpsichord, would you say? No, it sounded okay, but it didn't sustain as as well. It wasn't as good for lead work. Mm-hmm. It was okay for recording, for you know, for strumming, and so on. But it wasn't really a good lead instrument at that point. How did you find the other members to to make the birds the birds? Uh, Gene Clark and I started writing songs. Yep. David Crosby came along and turned us on to Jim Dixon, and we got a free studio to to work out in. And Dixon recommended we get a, a drummer and a bass player. And we saw Michael Clark walk in front of the tributary. It looked like two of the Rolling Stones. And we, we got him mostly on looks. Yeah. This is like 1965, 1966? 
64. 64. 64. Wow. Mm-hmm. Incredible. At 64 into 65. We recorded Mr. Chambree Man in, in January of 65, and Columbia didn't release it until, I think, June or May or sometime. They sat on it for a long time. I, I like to tell a story, but uh, Columbia was very conservative. They had Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. They had Doris Day. They didn't have any rock and roll. And their attitude toward rock and roll was that they thought it might be distasteful, you know, like the, the mob not wanting to sell heroin, but there was a lot of money in it. <laughs> was Mr. Tambourine Man the first rock record that came out on Columbia? I think it might have been. Might have been. It certainly wasn't something they were, they weren't really into it yet. You know, they Mm -hmm. were kind of lagging behind the other labels, RCA and uh, Capitol. But in some ways, wasn't the world lagging behind? Like, was it yet the popular form of music or was it still sort of underground or? Well, no, no. Rock and roll was a craze and people kept hoping it would go away quickly because it was creating juvenile delinquents. That was the story. Yeah, that was the story. And so, but RCA had Elvis back in, uh, what was it, uh, 56? So it had been around a while. And then we had Chuck Berry and, and we had Gene Vincent, Carl Perkins and, and uh, Everly Brothers and Johnny Cash. There was quite a bit of um, rock and roll out there. All of those artists, though, have more of a country flavor in their rock. It's all coming from the South and it's more like an extension of the Sun Records sound. Which Yeah, it was rockabilly. Yeah, more rockabilly than rock and roll. And it seemed like, I, I guess Little Richard might have been more rock and roll. And Chuck Berry was rock and roll. Uh-huh. Well, Bill Haley and the Comets are credited with starting the, the craze. And they were kind of like a holiday in band, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They weren't really rocking or rolling. Gene Vincent really rocked. And so did Elvis and Carl Perkins. The places you'd be playing in those, like Ciro's in those days, would hold... 50 people, 100, 200 people? How many people would you say? I'm not sure the, uh, of the capacity of Ciro's. It might have been 100, might, might have been 150. It was uh, all these like uh, sort of plush booths with tables. It was almost like a uh, casino. Yeah, I was going to say like Las Vegas. Yeah, like Vegas, yeah. It was something like that. It was old hat. It, was, it had been popular in the 40s with all the movie stars, and then it lost its uh, appeal. But when the birds got there, we started attracting Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda and um, Marlon Brando. And then we had this uh, group of, of dancers, uh, Vito and his gang, and they were wild. They were just, you know, they'd <laughs> and they were just a, a scene by themselves. And so the whole thing really, uh, it changed Hollywood a little bit. How did you meet Vito? Vito Pelikas, yes? Yeah. How did you meet him? I don't remember. I remember going to his studio and taking acid. <laughs> That's all I remember. I, I don't know how we how we got hooked up with them, but but they became our our dancing troupe, and they even went with us on the road on our first tour. Amazing. Took them on a bus tour Amazing. to uh, Indiana and you know Michigan and wow. places where people were freaking yeah, out. They've never seen anything. Minds. Never seen anything like it. No. Did they dance on the stage or in the audience? In the audience. Cool. In front of the stage. Amazing. But did, did they face the band or did they face the audience? Like, did it feel like they were part of the show? They, they were totally, no, they weren't facing anybody. They were totally absorbed in what they were doing. They I were see. Just, you know, they were just doing it. <laughs> so it was like a, a traveling dance party that happened between you and the audience. Yeah. Yeah. That's wow. Right. It's just wild to imagine, you know? 
Yeah, it was wild. The, the audience were like teenagers. They were pretty, pretty square. You know, they're like preppy looking, most of them. And they're maybe 13, 14, 15-year-olds. And they're just looking on in amazement at this whole spectacle. We did get um, screams. We, we got screaming fans at one point. <laughs> How long did it take for the audience to go from square fans to starting looking like more like people who could have been in bands? Yeah. Well, I remember I used to wear those little glasses. Mm -hmm. I remember looking out in the audience and there'd be people with those little glasses on. So it was starting to catch on. Maybe not more than a few months. How's your relationship to music changed from the early days to now? Well, it's um, a labor of love. I do shows. I still do shows. And I do like a one-man show. It's like a, a play that has a lot of these stories I'm telling you. And I fold in the songs that go with, with the stories. And I change, I change it up. It's not always the same. We've got, uh, we got all these modules. You can put in different modules of stories and songs. And my wife and I just hit the road together. It's the idea I got from Ramblin' Jack Elliott when I was on the Rolling Thunder review. Mm -hmm. And Ramblin' said, yeah, one of the most fun things I ever did was throw the guitar in the back of the Land Rover, and me and Polly, that was his wife, hit the road, and we did all these little gigs, and it was so much fun. And I'd been in a band with, you know, had instrument cases and trucks and yeah, a lot of logistics and people to deal with. <laughs> and I thought, man, this would be more fun. So I started doing that, and then gradually it became kind of a, a scripted one-man play. It sounds great. Tell me about Rolling Thunder. What was that experience like? Rolling Thunder was great. It started off with Bob used to come over to my house in Malibu, and he noticed a basketball hoop over the garage, and he said, do you have a basketball? I said, no, because when I was 15, I, I jammed my finger on a basketball, and I couldn't play guitar for a few weeks. But I bought a basketball the next day, and I called up his house, and he was out, but I got Sarah, and I said, well, tell Bob I got a basketball. She said, oh, he'll be thrilled. So Bob came over the next day, and we're shooting baskets in the backyard. He said, I want to do something different. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, I don't know, something like a circus. Okay, so a couple of weeks later, I was on the road with a band, and I had some time off, and I went to the village. And went to Gertie's Folk City, and I ran into Larry Sloman, who at the time was a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine. And Larry said, I think Dylan's over at the other end, or the bitter end, whatever it was called. So I said, let's go see. So we went over there and walked in the back room, and there was Jacques Levy, my writing partner, and Bob Dylan sitting at a table with a couple of brandies. And I walked in, and they sit up, and the brandies went flying. They said, Roger, we were just talking about you. We're putting this tour together. We'd like you to go on it. So I, I had a band, and I was on tour myself, but I postponed those dates and went on Rolling Thunder. And it was all Bob's friends from the village. You know, it's uh, Bobby Newerth and Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Allen Ginsberg and Joan Baez came along, Joni Mitchell. And we'd pick up people like uh, Willie Nelson in Texas and Gordon Lightfoot in Toronto and Leonard Cohen in Montreal. You know, it was, it was an amazing, amazing tour. About 100 people on the road in buses and cars and... <sighs> It was like a, a parade, and it was like a circus. It was like a circus. And it wasn't exactly like the Scorsese film portrays it. it was, I think it was even more fun than that. I bet. It sounds incredible. And the recordings from that era are some of my favorite of, of his. Like, he, his voice sounds great. His singing is great. The song sounds so good. 
he was really on his game at that point. And some of my favorite songs are the ones he wrote with Jacques Levy for Desire. Agreed. Tell me about Subud. Okay, well, when I was in the village, I was hanging out with Bob Carey, who had been in a group called the Terriers, with Eric Darling and Alan Arkin, and there was this mime, Lionel Shepard. And we're walking around, and Bob and I are sharing a joint. And I offered it to Lionel, and he said, no, I got something better. I said, what's that? He said, uh, it's called Subud. I said, what is it, something you, you put in your coffee and drink it? or?" <laughs> he said, come on down, you know, next Thursday and see what it is. So I did. And it was a spiritual exercise. It was kind of like uh, the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't Christian or anything. It was just, you know. So I got into it. It was something I did for a while. I had a, a friend who was who was in Subu, grew up in Subu, and she followed Ramadan. Yeah, a lot of people were uh, into Islam. Well, it came out of Indonesia, so uh, the, the head guy, Bapak, they called him, uh, he was uh, a Muslim. So it was, it was a kind of nonverbal Islam. There was no doctrine or anything. It was just, you go in and do these, it's almost like a dance. You do a, a spiritual dance, and you know, it's supposed to be good for your soul. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I didn't realize that there was a physical component. Would you say that this was like TM? like a spiritual fad of the time. I think so. Uh, you know, I got out of it. I didn't stay in it. And later I accepted Jesus. So, you know, that's all I needed. And and how did that happen? It happened in 77 when Elvis Presley died. And he was seven years older than I was. I was 35. And he was doing quaaludes and uppers and downers. And I had a, uh, a doctor in L.A. who'd give me anything I wanted. And I was doing that, too, plus uh, the illegal drugs that I got my hands on. <laughs> so I, I thought, man, Elvis just died, and he was seven years older. I, if I only got seven years, I better start cleaning up my act. And so I started working on that. And in the process, that's when I ran into this jazz guy named Billy, and he prayed with me about Jesus, and I accepted Jesus. Beautiful. Yeah. So it changed your lifestyle to a healthy lifestyle and you have this spiritual connection. Right. It's beautiful. Right. Inspiring. And my wife and I, well, I, I told, turned my wife onto it. I met her in an acting class. We were both starting the same night, and we had to do method acting. And the uh, assignment was to get her to do something she didn't want to do. And I had talked to her before and found out she'd been a Baptist when she was a kid, but got away from it. So I knew something she didn't want to do. So I started singing the... My buddy shun me since I turned to Jesus, they say I'm missing a whole world of fun. Yeah. And she's, I said, what do you think of that? She said, it sounds kind of country. I said, yeah, what do you think of the words? She said, oh, man, you're trying to tell me about Jesus. And she stomped <laughs> off the stage. And all the kids in the class clapped. And they said, wow, what was that? That sounded like, you know, <laughs> a real play. And then a couple of weeks later, she accepted Jesus. And now we been together for 44 years and we read the bible every morning beautiful congratulations can you play that song for us now let's see my buddy tell me i should have waited they say i'm missing a whole world of fun but i still love them and walk it alive. 
lantern light Oh, I won't lose a friend by heeding God's call For what is a friend who want you to fall? Others find pleasure in things I despise I like the Christian life I like the Christian life It's beautiful. I never heard that song before. Really? No. It's a Living Brothers song. It's a, it's a, it's a written song in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Not, a, not a gospel song, but... It's uh, the Living Brothers did it. It's beautiful. I would hearing that makes me want to hear a whole album of you doing acoustic devotional material. Just just sharing that. <laughs> Could do that. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> you wanted to hear something else. The Cane Blues. You said. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So this is my favorite. My favorite of the Folk Den songs that I'm aware really? of is this one. That's interesting. That's interesting. The story goes. It, it's an old prison song, and. Uh, I recorded it back when there was a website called mp3.com. Michael Robertson uh, is an entrepreneur. He put together this website, and he would take mp3s and make little uh, CDs of them, and he'd give you 50%, which is unheard of in the record business. So I, I signed up for that, and I did Cane Blues. First, it was called Ain't No More Cane on the, the Brazos, and nobody was clicking on it. I changed the title to Cane Blues, and it shut up. The <laughs> Ain't no more keen on the drive Round it all into molasses Well, what's the matter? Something must be wrong. Ooh. We're still here rolling, shorty George done gone. Go down, old Hannah, don't you rise no more. You rise anymore, bring judgment show. Look at my old Hella, she's a turning red. Look at my partner, he's almost dead. Well, you should have been here around 1940. There was a dead man at every turn road. Ain't no more king on this prize, it all into molasses I love that song 
I love that song. It's a cool song. I heard it from Bob Gibson the first time. And he did it a little different. I, I think I changed the chords on it, but I, I like the chord pattern. It's unusual in that it's uh, it's got a lot of passing chords, you know, instead of uh, just uh, C, A minor to D, and then it goes to B minor. So it's got some interesting passing chords. It, there's so much emotion in it, and um, and I've played this. I've played that song for many artists that I work with just to talk about the amount of emotion that can be held in a song, even when you don't necessarily know what all the words are about. And it's, what's also interesting about it is it's so repetitive. You know, it's, it's a very simple structure that just keeps repeating. It's a loop, yeah. yeah. There's no chorus or anything. But it doesn't, it doesn't get old. You know, it doesn't get old. That loop can go on for a long time, and it does feel like this, the emotion, and it just keeps getting deeper and deeper with the story. Beautiful, beautiful song. Okay, well, old Hannah is the sun, the I sunrise. I didn't know that. Uh huh. Old Hannah is the sun, sun rising. What are the other? To, yeah, decode as much as you can for me. It'd be great for me. Okay, well, like ain't no more cane on the Brazos. It was a sugar cane, like a work farm for a prison, and they cut all the uh, cane down and turned it into molasses. Something. Brazos is the river. Brazos River, yeah, down in Texas. Uh, what, oh, what's the matter? Something must be wrong. Ooh, uh, we're still rolling. That's being still in prison. Shorty George Dungani got out. Shorty George got out somehow. <laughs> what's, there's something wrong. We're still here, and he's gone. Oh, he's I like see. That. Yeah. Look at my old Hannah. She's a turning red. Ooh, um, so that's sunset the sunrise. or the sunrise. sunrise. Or it could be sunset, yeah. Look at my partner. He's almost dead. They just worked the people to death there. Go down, old Hannah, don't you rise no more. Okay, that's a sunset. Yeah. And if you rise anymore, you bring judgment. Sure, you're gonna, we're going to get in trouble tomorrow, you know, because yeah. we get in trouble every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day is trouble. Um, should have been here around 1904. It's a dead man on every turn row. So people are, you know, getting worked to death. There was one, should have been here in 1910, working women just like the men. So it's a, a prison song about harsh... Uh, labor-intensive, you know, work-you-to-death kind of stuff. Wow. I had no idea it even was prison-related. You know, again, without knowing the context, there's nothing in the lyric if you don't know what the what it means. I, it was clearly a sad song, and it was it was clearly a work song, but I didn't understand that it was a prison song. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that gets lost with the uh, singer-songwriter genre. People aren't doing those old songs anymore. Yeah, I'm so thankful that you're that you're doing the folk den and that these songs live on. And if people want to hear them, they go to the website. Is that the best way? McGuinn.com, the folk den section. Great. We have to pause for another quick break, but we'll be back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Roger McGuinn in just a sec. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans have this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit. And I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye. Or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We're back with Rick Rubin and Roger McGuinn. How has recording changed over the course of your life? So it started, you said it was tape in the beginning, but really more specifically, technologically, from the early days of recording until now, what are all the changes that you've seen? The first recording I did was on a uh, Ampex 3 track, 
three track and that was we recorded beach ball on that bobby dern played drums and frank Carey played piano and and i played guitar and we all sang and clapped our hands and we got a, a record deal on capital called ourselves the city surfers and that was a three track we couldn't really overdub very well and then <laughs> when i got in the birds they had a four track at columbia studios in la and they had an eight track it was over against the wall and they, somebody had written with a sharpie or a, you know like felt pen big bastard on, on this eight track and they didn't want to hook it up because it was too too new too much trouble they finally did. They finally got the 8-track going. But So I went from 3-track to 4-track to 8-track to 16-track to 32-track, 64-track, and digital. And then I told you about the um, digital audio workstations mm -hmm. and got into – couldn't afford Pro Tools when I first ran into it. It was like $10,000 for a rudimentary uh, setup. So I got um, something called Digital Orchestrator Plus. It was like a, a $90 program, and it did the same thing. It recorded in 44.1 um, waveforms, you know, 16-bit. And it sounded pretty good. I recorded the uh, treasures from the folk den on, on that system. Cool. And then gradually I got Pro Tools, and I, I've had Pro Tools for years and years now. And, you know, I find it very uh, easy to work with and fun. I, I love being able to pop things in and move them around like a word processor. And I imagine the the advantage of being able to record at home versus in a you know in a big studio with all this equipment is a good uh, it's a good change in terms of being able to make whatever you want whenever you want. Absolutely. I mean, I, I tell kids, I say you don't need to go to a recording studio and spend thousands of dollars. You can just get a Mac and Pro Tools and do it at home. I mean, all you need is a good microphone <laughs> and maybe some editing skills. Yeah, you said you went into the earliest version the three-man version of the birds i don't know what you were called at that time into it was a jet set called the jet set the jet set do you remember what you recorded in that first session when you decided we need more players i think it was some stuff that gene clark and i had written like uh, the only girl that i adore or whatever uh you showed me which the turtles later picked up was one of the songs that gene gene and i wrote and it was rejected for the birds, we, we, we didn't get to do it, but um, the turtles got a hit with it. Cool. Do, do you remember it at all? You showed me? Yeah. Can you play me a little of it? Yeah. Well, first, the original version was down, down here. You showed me how to do exactly what you do. How I fell in love Such a great song. It's an incredible song. Oh, it's true. I'm in love with you And when I tried it I could see you fall And I've decided It's not a trick at all You taught it to me too Exactly what you do now you love me too Oh, 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 it's true You're in love with you And I always love that um, relative minor thing to the, the G to E minor like And when I tried I could see you fall And I've decided It's not a trick at all. 
Are the chord changes rooted in classical music? It feels like it is. Well, it was. If it was, it was uh, subliminally, mm-hmm. in, you know, rooted in classical because uh, Gene Clark and I wrote it. We were standing in Jim Dixon's driveway, and we both had a crush on the same girl. And <laughs> we wrote it about this girl that we both had a crush on. And um, I remember something interesting. There's something like spiritual in it because uh, as I was playing it, my guitar it was almost like a divining rod. It was move, moving around in like, you know, figure eights, like an infinity sign. Uh, it was it was kind of unusual for for that to happen. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, like a like a dowsing rod or divining rod. Yeah, yes. yeah, something like that. Like a you know divining uh, water. <laughs> Amazing. I've got a BMI award for one million plays. It's probably had more than that by now, but it's been covered by uh, Salt and Pepper and uh, Wow. Let's see, U two. Wow. Uh, Kanye West. Wow. It's such a beautiful song. I love that song. Thank you. Have you had any other mystical experiences? Oh yeah, I mean yeah. Tell me. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, sometimes I see stuff through the walls, you know, like little dots of light and things like that. Mm-hmm. You could call it hallucinating, whatever. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> and also, I've always, I've always had this thing, this tactile thing, where you know, I could feel something in the air, something that isn't there. I used to do that. I remember in uh, the Columbia studio, I, I'd, I'd be waving my hand around while I was singing, and. When I sang Mr. Tambourine Man, well, Jim Dixon had made us read An Actor Prepares by Stanislavski. Jim had a, a little experience in the Hollywood area. He, he was married to Diane Varsi for a short time, and he helped her with her career until she decided she did, didn't want to live in Hollywood and do that. So he made us read An Actor Prepares, which is about method acting. So when I got the lyrics to Mr. Tambourine Man, I wanted to do a parallel meaning and I was singing, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. I wasn't singing to an abstract tambourine man. I was singing to God. Beautiful. So that was a, a mystical experience to it. I think the reason that song was as popular as it was is because it had some real heartfelt truth in it. Absolutely. And there's something about the, like, lyrically, there's nothing obviously devotional in in Tambourine Man. But when you're connected in a devotional way, there's an energy that can come through that you can just feel it. I never I never knew that. It's a beautiful story. I love hearing that story. Yeah. Do you feel things in space in general or just in certain places? Well, it's not all the time. I, I wouldn't say it's uh, dependent on the place so much as, as the time and the, you know, mental, uh, spiritual attitude I have, whatever. I remember they asked Tom Petty about how he writes songs. He said, well, I, you know, they come down from, <laughs> I don't want to know. He said, that yeah, yeah, might yeah. go away. Tom was a great friend and, and a wonderful inspiration to me. I, I know I inspired him somewhat, but, you know, he was just an incredible performer and songwriter and a, a really sweet guy. He was just the sweetest guy. He was the best. He, you inspired him a lot, and he talked about you all the time. I, this is the first time we're meeting, but he talked about you all of the time. Oh, well, we, we had a good friendship. He's, he was such a great, he was a great songwriter, but he was such a great musician and mm-hmm. had such a beautiful voice, but he knew everything about making records. Like in the studio, he was a total craftsman. He could do anything. And uh, it was just fun to be around him. I learned so much being around him. 
Yeah. Wow. Well, we miss him. Absolutely. Have you heard other versions of songs you've written that made you hear them in a new way? Yeah, well, Eight Miles High got covered by uh, Husker Du, Husker Du. Yeah, yeah, Husker Du. And they did sort of a real headbanger version of it, like loud and, and raucous. It was good. And um, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star got covered a lot. Yeah. By Patti Smith and Tom Petty. Uh, when you hear other people do your songs, does it feel like, that's my song? Or does it feel like, oh, oh I like what they're doing with this thing? Like, what's the experience like hearing someone else sing a song you've written? It's a nice feeling, you know, even even if you don't appreciate the, the whole way they did it, it's a nice feeling to know that they did do it. Yeah, they picked you. They picked your song. They picked your work. Yeah. Yeah, and they could have picked anything and they picked yours. So tell me about Terry Melcher. Okay, when we got signed to Columbia Records, Jim Dixon assumed that he would be our producer because he was a record producer. And Columbia had a strict policy. They, only, they were a union house, and they only used their staff producers. So they assigned us the 23-year-old son of one of their biggest artists, Doris Day. It was Terry. <laughs> had he already produced a lot of stuff at 23? Well, he's, he knew what he was doing. He was friends with, with um, Brian Wilson. Mm -hmm. And he knew, he knew Brian had used the Wrecking Crew on some Beach Boys stuff. Mm -hmm. And he also knew that Michael Clark couldn't play the drums. <laughs> And we were a fledgling band, uh, just kind of learning how to play together. So he got the Wrecking Crew to come and do the band track of Mr. Tambourine Man and the flip side, I Knew I'd Want You. And I was allowed to play on it because I'd been a studio musician in New York and I also had the Rickenbacker and the, the Helix. So I got to play on it. And then the band went nuts. It said, no, we want to be like the Beatles. We want to play on our own stuff. And Okay, so they they got to ever after that. We just only did two tracks with the Wrecking Crew. But with the Wrecking Crew, we knocked out two songs in a three-hour session. And when we got the whole band playing, it took us 77 takes to get turn, turn, turn. <laughs> what was it like playing with the Wrecking Crew? It was really fun. You know, that they were uh, so polished and professional. And, you know, they didn't do a strict beat. I, I analyzed some of their stuff, and they, they're like a school of fish. You know, they'd, they'd go around together. You know, they maybe go up tempo, down tempo, and sideways, and, you know, but they were always together. They were tight. And I was a little nervous. Hal Blaine said, you ought to got, go out and have a couple of beers, kid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. So, but I got, we, we got the, uh, the session done, and it came out good, so... Were they older than you guys at that time? Oh uh, yeah, they're about maybe like uh, seven years older, about like Elvis's age. You know? I see. It was Hal Blaine, Leon Russell on electric piano, Jerry Cole on a six-string guitar, and, and Jerry was playing chinks like. And that was something they got from "Don't Worry Baby" because they played on "Don't Worry Baby" yeah. for the Beach Boys, yeah. and there were chinks in that. And then uh, Bill Pittman played on it. Bill Pittman was guitar, Jerry Cole guitar. And Larry Nechtel, who usually did keyboards, played bass. Wow, he's great. Yeah, he was he was great. It was a, a fun experience. A little nerve-wracking, but fun. For sure. But I think the, some people know the story of the Wrecking Crew, but they're one of the greatest bands of all time, really. Absolutely. And I, you know, I didn't know they were the band that played on Phil Spector's uh, Wall of Sound stuff. You know, I used to love to do Ron Ron and uh, My Boyfriend's Back or whatever, all those, all those songs that... Oh, and, the, and then when Hal passed away, the story came out. See, I always thought this was a Beatle beat, like, a, let's see, uh, 
okay, so the story goes that Hal dropped a stick he was on one of the sessions, <laughs> and, and so he couldn't he couldn't play boom 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 boom. He could go boom 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 boom. That's and incredible. As a musician, when you make a mistake, you want to continue it so it sounds like you did it on purpose, and that's, that's what he did. So he invented that boom 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 beat because he dropped a stick. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's the sound of all the Phil Spector records. That, that it is. That it's, that's the sound, and then the Beatles picked it up. Yeah, and I call I used to call it a Beatle beat because I didn't realize that Hal had come up with it for Phil Spector. That's amazing, and came up with it by mistake. This is a great thing to talk about. How much do mistakes play into the process of writing something? Well, that one sure did. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, I, I love the. Uh, I met him on a Sunday, and his name was Bill. Oh, yeah, at the Brill Building, Kenny Young and I used to analyze Phil Spector records, you know, and we'd look at the, he used to scribble little stuff on, on the uh, vinyl, and it's like um, Audio Matrix, he yeah. wrote, with a little stylus, <laughs> the wall of sound. Wow. Why did Gene Clark leave the band? Well, there's two stories about that. The first one goes, we were ready to fly from L.A. to New York to do a TV special with Murray the K. And back in those days, you could kind of get on a plane whenever you wanted. They didn't have the screening and all the stuff they got now. So I used to show up late. You know, I'd get there just before they closed the door. And so I got on the plane, and everybody's on the plane, and Gene Clark is standing up in the aisle in a cold sweat. He's going, man... I, I can't do this, man. You know, and we thought, wow, this maybe he's psychic. Maybe you know something. <laughs> uh, anyway, he got off the plane, and I, I remember saying, "Well, if you you can't fly, you can't be a bird." <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. So you said there are two versions of the story. That's one. Okay, well, that that was <laughs> one. He had a nervous breakdown on the plane and left. Yeah, and it was. And you think it was? He's just afraid of flying. Uh, he was afraid of flying. And, he, and it just got warped by that time, the pressure. Yeah, of, well, he, he was doing some heavy uh, LSD and stuff. And, you know, I don't think he was on acid at that point, but it, some something had damaged his nervous system. <laughs> he, was, he was not a well man. He was, um, But Jim Dixon, in his later years, developed some kind of illness where he had to go to the hospital, and we didn't know if he was going to make it. So I, I went to the hospital with, with my guitar to cheer him up and played some songs for him. And that's when he gave me what I think might have been a deathbed confession, mm. although he didn't die then. But he said, well, you know, Gene left the band, but Eddie Tickner and I, that was his co-manager, were thinking about spinning him off to be a new Elvis Presley. So he was going to go solo. Yeah. Wow. And he did. Wow, wow. And he did. And, yeah. and he, didn't, he didn't become Elvis Presley, but... Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. He did some good stuff. He did some really pretty, Absolutely. like no other, is really a, a fine album. Mm -hmm. When did Ticket to Ride come out in relation to Bird's Time? It came out after the Birds. So guitar-wise, it must be inspired by, because it's so much of the Birds sound. Yeah, I think so. I, I know we did uh, influence George, because he, uh, he sent Derek Taylor back from London with, with a tape of uh, If I Needed Someone. And he got the riff from my uh, Bells of Rumney. So, 
and he, he asked Derek to tell me that. And I, I was, wow, man, the Beatles inspired us and we've inspired the Beatles back. It's really a cool thing. It's the best. It's the best to, uh, to make something you love and to also to be recognized by someone that you respect their work. It's, it's, there's no better feeling. I know. It's great. And we became friends. The Beatles and the Birds became friends, and we hung out together and you know, took acid with them. This is a weird thing I was thinking about right before we started talking. I looked at your discography and started thinking that we tend to think of musicians' lives through their discography. And I was feeling like it doesn't make sense, and I feel like it's not fair. I don't think the discography does is a true reflection of... You. Doesn't do justice. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I never, th- I never thought about it before, but for some reason, it hit me today that the discography—it's just another detail. Well, it's just so, the gig. It's just what we do for a living, and, yeah. and then there's a life that goes on beyond that. But it's an exciting gig. I've enjoyed it. I've, I've been very blessed that I could make money as a musician my whole life and never really had to do a day job except the Brill Building. Yeah, which, <laughs> which is not bad, and it's a good story. That was good experience, and I, and then being a studio musician was good experience. Do you write songs all the time? No, not anymore. There's no market for me doing that at this point. I I don't really feel inspired to do that. I'm I'm happy just doing the folk and keeping the traditional stuff alive. Great. And uh, it's it keeps my chops up and keeps my recording chops up and and my playing chops up and vocal and so it's really fulfilling. I'm working on a project. It's a slow, slow going, labor of love kind of thing. But Jack Levy and I collaborated on a musical back in 1968 called Trip, T-R-Y-P. Uh, Gene Trip was an anagram of Pierre Gant, and he got this, the idea for the story from Ibsen's Pierre Gant, but he wanted to move it to the Western United States. And 1968 is when the bird Sweetheart of the Rodeo came out, so he thought I'd be a good guy to co-write the, the music with him. And we wrote about 26 songs, and the thing never got mounted on Broadway. It did finally get played uh, when Shock became the theatrical um, instructor at Colgate College in Hamilton, New York. And the, the kids there did a version of it. But I'm, I'm re-recording some of the songs, and some of the songs were on the Birds records, like Chestnut Mare, and um, I'm a little conflicted because I've re-recorded Chestnut Mare, but you're never going to get it to sound like uh, the Clarence White version that came out on the Untitled album. And I was thinking, man, do I want to license this stuff from Sony or what do I want to, you know? But anyway, I've re-recorded it. It sounds pretty good. I got Marty Stewart to play the Clarence White parts on Chestnut Mare. He's and, great. And they're, they're spot on. He got that part right. So I was going to do a narration between the songs, kind of like Peter and the Wolf. Nice. And some of the songs have never been recorded before. Before. Like, um, what's on? Oh, the robin of the stage, the robin of the stage. You got to be proficient at the robin of the stage with the cold Smith and Wesson and a Remington 10 gauge. <laughs> so it's a pure gant went around he had to uh, the borg it's like this uh, supernatural force that kept him going from job to job and and so that's what happens in the gene trip thing he goes he's a preacher he's a riverboat gambler and he becomes a, a stagecoach robber uh, at one point and a politician and that's where the song i want to grow up to be politician came from that sounds great i can't wait to hear the whole thing i have i have one thought when you when you talk about doing covers of songs you've already 
been involved with, think about it like you're doing a cover of a, of a song that you had no part in and you want to reinterpret it in your own voice, making believe that right. the other one was not you. Like what, what would be the new, do, do you know what I'm saying? Instead of trying to remake. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a mental adjustment. It's a mental so adjustment of just think of like what, don't what get would intimidated be. By, don't get intimidated by the original. No, let go of the original completely and make the most interesting version to you today, forgetting what the old one was. Just look at the chords and the, and the melody and th- rethink, rethink the approach and that's good make, advice. Yeah, it's great because you can also, there's a chance you'll make one that's better than the original. You're never going to make one better than the original trying to do the original. But, no. you know, it happens sometimes where a cover song transcends the original because it, you find a new way in and it's really interesting. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. This is great. Oh, I you're welcome. I, I had fun. I had fun. It was great. Thanks again to the great Roger McGuinn. You can hear a playlist of our favorite Roger McGuinn and Bird songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, and Eric Sandler. Our editor is Sophie Crane. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A dot com to start a new musical journey today.